0: My global IQ is 109, 100, Seven. 145, 122, 109, 132, 118, 137, 103, 139, 151,
1: 147,
0: 103, 126.
1: This is Global IQ, I'm your host Jim Falk, and today I'm with Lee Carpenter, author of two novels that I've read and highly recommend, Eleven Days and Red, White, Blue, now available in paperback. I guess I got the book on Friday or Saturday of last week, uh, that being Eleven Days, and I couldn't put it down. I know we're here mostly to talk about the paperback, but I want to encourage people to read Eleven Days, too, and they're very different.
0: Yes, Eleven Days was my first book, written... Quickly now, in retrospect, because I got the book contract based on really the first chapter of the book, which was written as a short story, and about a week after I got the contract from Knopf, I found out I was pregnant. So I went in to meet with my editor, and he said, "You know, we we like to let our authors take their time. You know, no deadline. You turn in the book when it's ready." I said, 12 you'll years." Have, said you'll, said <laughs> you'll have it in eight months. And it was also written you know, after having lost my father, and so the book is really an attempt to investigate a community that has been really brought down by loss as I was figuring out what loss meant to me, that being the, the Special Operations Forces community, and uh, I loved it. I, it's you know like my first baby, that book. So. Lee, I'm so glad
1: you mentioned your, your dad because I heard another interview you did, and he was quite the storyteller, and that's a lost art.
0: My father used to drive my sister and brother and me to school every morning, which was about a, depending on the traffic, a 20 to 35 minute drive. And every morning he would tell us a Greek myth. I only learned much later that he would, you know, reread the myth the night before, so it was very fresh in his mind, but he was a great storyteller. And I also think that he, Set up those commutes that way so that he didn't have to talk to small children. It was kind of his way of commandeering the conversation in the car. But I will never forget those times with him because we, I didn't see him a lot otherwise. And you know, Greek mythology is a big is a big influence for me and is kind of woven into Eleven Days. The title Eleven Days comes from the very end of the Iliad, where Priam whose son has been killed by Achilles, goes to visit Achilles in his tent, taking a huge risk. And Achilles killed Priam's son, Hector, to avenge the death of Patroclus, who was Achilles' closest friend. These two men sit down, the great warrior Achilles, they sit down and they bond over loss. And they weep. And Achilles says to Priam, what do you want? And Priam says, I'd like you to stand on your army so that I can bury my child. And Achilles says, how long will it take? And Priam says, 11 days. And the last pages of the Iliad are really a description of the burial rituals surrounding the burial of Hector, which take 11 days. All of that came from my dad, all of that interest came from him, certainly my interest in the military.
1: And after your dad passed away, you had some visitors that came to the house that you didn't expect to see.
0: We did. I think it was two days after he died, the former director of the FBI, Louis Free, who was a family friend, came along with a close colleague of his, Gene Sullivan, who had been the Chief Justice of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces, something I didn't even know existed. But they had appealed to then Secretary of Defense um, Gates to have a citation declassified and it was a Bronze Star citation, first military citation I'd ever seen. Since that time, I've seen many of them. And they're fascinating because they're all written in this sort of very specific language. But this was a citation that my father had been awarded for something he had done that I never knew about, which was to lead a, a what was called, they're still called sometimes, Special Mission Unit operations. After Pearl Harbor, Our response was to, as you know, send what were called the Doolittle Raiders, a group of pilots under the famous Jimmy Doolittle, who had volunteered for what was essentially a suicide mission, to go and drop these bombs. They would then be landing in enemy territory. So the assumption was, if you were going to go on this, if you were going to fly one of these planes, you probably weren't coming back. We sent the Raiders over. Many of them, we knew though, were alive, and so we had to send a group people over to find those pilots and bring them home and that was that was what my father had been involved in that's
1: amazing when you talk about the greatest generation we know that many times they didn't want to talk about their experiences and I think one of the things that's so interesting about your work is you've been able to draw people out why is it important for those who have served especially in such difficult challenging assignments to express their emotions and maybe even write it down
0: I could talk for a long time in answer to that question, thank you for asking it, but my father and my mother had a big age difference. I was born when he was in his late 50s. By the time I was old enough to ask him about his life, it never occurred to me to say, what did you do 45 years ago? And he had very little interest in talking about the past in general, his own past in particular. What I say to so many of my friends who've served in these wars is, you may now feel, oh, I'm not a hero, or don't thank me for my service, or I just, as, as so many people who choose to serve do really feel, you know, I just did what felt like the right thing to do. Most of my friends, we have young kids, your kids may not want to know for 20, 30 years about this stuff. And in 30 years, when they say, what happened 40 years ago in Fallujah, it will be such a gift to them if there's some record of what you've done. You know, there are many veterans who came out of these conflicts who are writing books, but I've tried to, for this book and in a different way for Red, White, Blue, just talk to as many people as I could, which has been a really exciting, fun process. It's my research, but it's a lot of conversations. And whereas when I started out, the SEAL team suddenly were on the radar screen because of the bin Laden raid, and the Navy was denying all requests to journalists, whereas if I had been some hard-hitting, well-known journalist. Nobody may have wanted to speak with me. I was a completely unknown, um, pregnant, female novelist who could not have seemed less threatening. And I With did, her first book. <laughs> and I did not want to know who was on the raid or what happened that night. I really wanted to know, you know, what is your relationship with your mother like? And how many times a day do you Skype your girlfriend from the base? And tell me what tools you use to manage your addiction or your PTSD or, or your, you know, the, the tempo of your line of work. And I found almost in every occasion, after you've talked to someone about their mother, their child and their addiction or their sleep apnea or whatever, I would say, thank you. And I'd be ready to go. And invariably they would say, don't, don't you want to hear about, you know, this, that, or the other thing. And some, some tactical or strategic or, you know, episodic story would come out at the end. I tried to weave some of those into the books, but I wasn't digging, a friend of mine says that journalism's job is to expose the lies and fiction's job is to expose the truths. I like that, it sounds, it sounds nice, but I, I, I was looking for the emotional truth, you know. What does it feel like to be in this line of work?
1: I've been dying to ask you this question because uh, I, I really don't want to let our listeners know too much about the plot. But in both books, there is a real twist at the end that you don't suspect and it really hits you hard. Do you plan that ahead? Do you is, do you have an outline or are you thinking I, as you go?
0: I didn't. I would like to um, try to do an outline <laughs> for my next book, but no both in both cases there was a lot of thinking as I went along. I worked with a film director Peter Berg on another project last year and I wrote a screenplay for him that has a big twist at the end and I remember what's the name of that mile 22 and I remember he sat me down at a certain point in the process and he said you know he's a big football fan as am I and he said you know Lee if we take the audience to the one yard line and we kick them in the teeth a lot of them will hate us but some of them will love us so let's try it and I hadn't thought about it, but I think in both, in both books in different ways, I, I, I tried to take the reader to the one-yard line and then, and then surprise them and, and if it works. Um, in 11 days, the shock, I think, is more visceral, and, and readers have really responded to it.
1: Well, it does work. Someone once told you that asking someone to be- betray their country is like asking someone to marry you. How does that work?
0: Yes, the, I had a wonderful, just brilliant, thoughtful case officer who spent a lot of time with me talking about the emotional experiences of being in that line of work. He mentioned that, which, of course, you know was interesting to me. And what he said was, the reason asking someone to betray their country is very much like asking someone to marry you, is that in both cases, there's a high degree of risk, and in both cases, you don't ask the question until you know the answer at least if you're smart about it. And it was that analogy when he made it very early on in our talks that I thought there's something about the experience of being in CIA and dealing with the questions of trust in that line of work that is similar to being in a marriage or really any relationship, but marriage being the most intense cauldron of interpersonal relationships. And so in in the book, as you know, I tried to interweave the story of a marriage in in its very early days that comes upon a crisis with the experience of a case officer who's highly trained and goes out to deploy in these terror wars or forever wars or whatever one calls them and he comes upon a different crisis and how they both handle them.
1: In red, white and blue why did you situate it in China? Do you have a specific interest?
0: This case officer who very early on had agreed to talk to me He had a a focus on China, but probably more importantly, my father had lived and served in China. My father had loved Asia, and after he died, my mother gave me an essay that he'd written when he was 17 called Before I Die. The Wall Street Journal published it not long after that, but in that he talks about, as a 17-year-old kid who didn't know that two years later he would be dropping out of Princeton to go into the army and go to war, he talked about one of the things he wanted was to learn from China, and, and how much we can all learn from China. And I sort of, that, that stayed with me. It seems a foreign topic, but so was Special Operations Forces when I started looking at it. And because, you know, and certainly more so since I wrote the book, because there is a kind of fear, visceral fear of China now, I thought that one of the things I could do in the book was talk about the importance of empathy and the importance of understanding a culture that can seem very foreign like I point out in the book about the um, the kind of systematized theft that occurs in, in Chinese culture but how for them it's not a sin It's more a part of their business model, and um, I tried to open my mind up to understand um, some of the choices that Chinese intelligence might make, and I think that's what all of our case officers who go to Asia are, are trying to do on a daily basis.
1: What are you working on now?
0: Okay, I've been working on a short story collection, actually, and I'm about eight stories into it, and then once I do two or three more, I'm gonna start the next book, which I hope will be a kind of last volume in, what could be a you know a, a trilogy of books addressing, you know, um, um, the emotional lives of people who serve in the post nine eleven era, and I'm, I'm also working on a on a television project.
1: So That's all you're going to tell see. me about that? I suspect.
0: I, I, I'm too <laughs> suspicious. It's it's it involves law enforcement. That's all I can say. Well, I
1: know it'll be very successful. You. Thanks Thank so you. much for joining Thank us. Thank you way. for having Great me. Great fun to have you here. Thank
0: you so much. Thank you.
1: Thank you for listening to Global IQ with Jim Falk, a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Subscribe and rate Global IQ Minute on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And special thanks to my producers and council staff members Kara Schechtman and Kayla Smith. And with that, I ask all of you, what's your Global IQ?